name is Christian Wagner, and I'm the militant Thomist. When this is uh, Scholastic Answers, I don't know how to, how to rephrase this, but we're going to be having a fun uh, Q&A here. I will answer all your questions, uh, typical sort of mode of procedure, um, super chats, and then uh, members come first, although I'm not sure whether through my streaming thing I can see whether somebody's a member or not, so I will just keep the stream open on YouTube on a different tab to, to just make sure. But uh, yeah, if you join or if you throw a super chat, then I am obliged to answer. But otherwise, I will do like I normally do and just go through as many as I can. And if I think the question is dumb or well, there are dumb questions and uh, I don't like the question or if the question isn't something that I know about, then I will just refuse to answer because why would I answer those questions? Okay. We're already starting to fill up, but I'm pulling up the stream on. There you go. Okay. Bam. Let's start from the top. So TM, I just learned what anathema actually means reading Thomas's commentary on Galatians. Nobody knows what anathema actually means. Wow, this is this is actually kind of intriguing. I'm gonna have to check out. I have read his commentary on Galatians, but I do not remember exactly what he says about Athema. Let's see. It's gonna be in Is it in uh chapter two of Galatians? No, it's one nine. I don't know why I thought it was in chapter two. That's why I couldn't find it. Okay, so twenty-two to twenty-eight. Okay. Let's, let's see, gives it right here. Okay, sorry, usually doesn't take me that long to find stuff. Okay, so he shows that his authority for passing sentence is great on the grounds that it would not, on, uh, would affect not only the perverters and seducers who are subject to him, but also his own equals as the other apostles and even those above him as the angels were they guilty of this crime, namely of turning the gospel into the old law. Hence, he says, because the authority behind the sentence which we pass, which is excommunication, has efficacy, not only over those who are doing these things, then through we, namely the apostles, or an angel, good or evil, coming from heaven, preach a gospel besides that which we have preached, let it be anathema, i.e. subject to the sentence that we pass. To elucidate the foregoing, three things should be investigated. First, the meaning of the word anathema. Purpose of this, it should be noted that anathema is a Greek word composed of ana, which means above, and thesis, which means a placing, hence a placing above. The word arose from an old custom. For the ancients, when they waged war, sometimes took from their enemies certain booty, which they were unwilling to turn to their own use, but hung it in the temple or another public place of the city as though to separate it from the common use of men. Everything so hung up, the Greeks called anathema. 
and for this arose the custom of declaring anathematized anything excluded from common use. Hence it is said of Jericho and of everything in it that Joshua once anathematized it. Consequently, even in the church, the practice arose of declaring anathema, those who are excluded from the common society of the church and from the partaking of the sacraments of the church. There you go. Anathema is a separation from the church. Yeah, most people, when they think of anathema, they're talking about, um, they, pe people think about a, a, a damnable sentence uh, or declaration, but it really has more to do with uh, removing from the common society of the church. And only uh, second quid does it have to do with um, any sort of damnation. Um, good question. Can you prove without a doubt that there is a divinely instituted difference between presbyters and bishops? I find it hard to see this when reading the Bible and even certain church fathers like Jerome. Yes, I can uh, prove to you that there is a divinely instituted difference between presbyters and bishops because the Holy Catholic Church uh, distinguishes them. Okay. Would name your dog Anathema so you can command him to sit be based. Anathema sit. Yeah, but going back to your question, I was being a little, a uh, little cheeky, but um, so from from this, you're you're asking from the uh, the sources of immediate post apostolic tradition, and then also from sacred sacred scripture. So I think what the what the um, three order deniers kind of get right, and right is a weird way of saying it. What they get right is that. In the New Testament, there isn't that clean sort of distinction that we speak of. They're absolutely right with that. But what they're what they're wrong is they posit some sort of clean distinction because there is no clean distinction in the New Testament. Words are just kind of thrown around. Like we think of apostle in a certain sense. The New Testament authors use apostle in many different senses. They use the word bishop in many different senses. They use the word presbyter and deacon in many different senses. You can see the see this in Lancelot Andrew's work on the on the matter. But really what, what you have to what you have to look at is the fact that there were certain there when we use words, we're signifying certain things as existing in reality. So when the New Testament authors were using these words, um, signifying in different senses, there were a there were single objects of these these significations. So for example, I could call Pope Francis, I can call him a priest, I can call him a bishop. I'm called the Pope. I could, in in a in a, in a uh, less proper sense, I could even call him a deacon. I could call him, um, uh, I, I I could I could call him many things, and uh, with our words with more or less propriety. So I think it's extremely difficult um, to make very hard and clean and fast judgments since uh, ecclesiastical titles were very widely used throughout the entirety of the New Testament. I don't think anybody would disagree with that. The fact that we speak of ecclesiastical titles different than the New Testament speaks of ecclesiastical titles. And it's really, really difficult to, to get behind the text to the actual thing. And uh, if, if I was just reliant on, uh, on the New Testament and then on immediate post-apostolic tradition, I don't, I, I wouldn't be able to create really any system, uh, not, not the, uh, the uh, jury divino system of Presbyterianism, not uh, not the episcopacy, uh, not not really any systems. But um, yeah, so that that those those are my thoughts uh, on the matter. I find it extremely difficult to 
um, be able to distinguish any sort of different uh, differentiation and system of New Testament ecclesiology when it comes to offices, just with the uh, just with the New Testament. Okay. Um, oh, Orthodox Travis is here. How are you doing, Orthodox Travis? Did you? Oh, you messaged me. Based. Orthodox Travis is actually the official um, Militantomist meme connoisseur. Uh, this is an interesting question. Is it possible to do small, trivial, and very easy things for the love of God? If so, is it legit to also do this in order to gain as much reward in the afterlife as possible? Well, this would be confusing the the gift with the giver, which the gift is really the giver himself, or really actually the created effect in the receiver, in the in the subject, because you have the the object of beatification, which is God himself. And then you have a certain created effect of joy, which is found in the subject. So you, uh, in asking this question, aren't seeking uh, the beatifying object, which is God himself, which is the the, the object really of um, of our beatitude. Uh, he uh, our, and the gift which is given is he himself uh, in our in our intellect and in our will. Well, in our intellect and then our will ascends uh, uh, to it um, in beatitude. So you're, you're confusing the effect of the gift with the giver and the gift itself. Uh, and that's a very uh, damnable error to seek, uh, to, to have a sort of idolatry of, of beatitude, or at least the effects of beatitude. Okay, so you're asking a question about pride. That is a very good question. Um, let me pull up something real quick for you, help you answer the question. Let's see if I can even remember where it is. Talks amongst yourselves. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> so Okay. So there you Go. I'm going to share my screen. So this is the distinction between magnanimity, or greatness of soul, and uh, and pride. So I'm going to read real quick what magnanimity is, and then we're going to be able to distinguish it down here from ambition, which is going to give us enough um, enough to. Uh, to, to garner the distinction between uh, pride and then uh, a dishonorable pride and an honorable pride. So whether magnanimity is about honors, 
Uh, I answer that magnanimity by its very name denotes stretching forth of the mind to great things. Now, virtue bears a relationship to two things. First, to the matter about which is the field of its activity. So really, um, it's the virtue in relationship to the thing in which the virtue is directed to. Second, to its proper act, which consists in the right use of such matter. And, and since a virtuous habit is denominated chiefly from its act, a man is said to be uh, magnanimous chiefly because he is minded to do some great act. So magnanimity is uh, really being directed towards doing great things. Now, an act may be called great in two ways, in one way proportionately, in another absolutely. An act may be called great proportionally, even if it consists in the use of some small or ordinary thing. Uh, if, for instance, one makes a very good use of it, but an act simply and absolutely great when it consists in the best use of the greatest thing. So the distinction between proportional or uh, relative and uh, absolute is the distinction between uh, considering the, the object of uh, the great thing we're doing in relation to other things versus in relation to itself. So that's very simply speaking. The things which come into man's use are external things. And among these, honor is the greatest simply because uh, both because it is the most akin to virtue, since it is an attestation, attestation to a person's virtue, as stated above, because it is offered to God and to the best. And again, because in order to obtain honor, even as to avoid shame, men set aside all other things. Now, a man is said to be magnanimous in respect of things that are great, absolutely and simply, just as a man is said to be brave in respect of things that are difficult, simply. It follows, therefore, that magnanimity is about honors. So basically, that's what you're, what you're talking about. Now, how is this um, opposed to now? How is pride or ambition? I guess I would uh, I'm going to distinguish them to kind of get the, the sort of relative relationship. How is how is magnanimity related to ambition? So Tully says that the more <clears throat> a man exceeds in magnanimity, the more he desires himself alone to dominate others. But this pertains to ambition. Therefore, ambition denotes an excess of magnanimity. As stated above, ambition signifies inordinate love of honor. Now, magnanimity is about honors and makes use of them in a becoming manner. Whereof is it, evident, it is evident that ambition is opposed to magnanimity as the inordinate to that which is well ordered. Okay, now when, when it comes to talking about uh, true versus uh, false pride, uh, true, true and good pride, and again I'm using pride in the proper sense, has to do with that that satisfaction which is proportionate to the thing. So uh, you you aren't going to have that same satisfaction for waking up in the morning as you would have for, um, I don't know, uh, doing some very courageous act. It is okay to have a proportional satisfaction when it comes to uh, finishing uh, cooking a good dinner, but to have one which is abundant and over, out of proportion, by excess, uh, that would be the sin of pride. So if you were just uh, insanely, you you had an insane degree of satisfaction when it comes to um, something very simple like uh, getting, I don't know, getting a glass of water for somebody. And you think that your, uh, your mother, Teresa. <clears throat> uh, do you have any liking for Star Trek or Star Wars? Not really. Have you studied Eastern metaphysics? I have not. We need Anglican questions. Oh, I don't think you want to. Um, 
Oh, great question, Christian Mario. What's your thoughts on Barlam and Josephat, canonized saints in the Roman martyrology that scholars all claim were legends that derived from Buddha? Oh, my scholars said so. Wow, I'm very scared. Well, I don't have many thoughts about it uh, when it comes to this particular case, but I guess I could tell you uh, in general how the martyrology is going to relate to um, canonization. So canonization is a certain act of the Roman pontiff um, in his in his majesty, basically in his magisterium, uh, declaring that a certain person is uh, in heaven and is worthy of um, is worthy of a cult, which is a certain um, devotion uh, to them, which is religious. So there, that's that's the act of the Roman pontiff. It is, it is something which uh, most theologians will say is infallible um, due to the fact that the entire church is bound in their veneration of that person. So when it comes to Barlaam and Josephat, um, they are in the martyrology, and this is what's called uh, pre-congregation saints. So when it comes to pre-congregation saints, they are not uh, declared so by an act of the papal magisterium. Rather, there is certain um, local uh, or regional uh, acceptance of that certain person by the common people. So uh, even if it is included in the martyrology, uh, it is not something which uh, is, is in, the, in the actions of the papal magisterium of canonization, but rather it is uh, sort of a, a, a general, uh, I guess you could say, uh, a, a general binding uh, to their, to their, um, to their veneration. So while it would be supremely unfitting uh, to say that uh, somebody in the martyrology wasn't actually a saint, uh, it is not entirely uh, impossible that uh, the martyrology errs in this way. Like I'm sure we could say uh, that there's certain uh, facts about the saint that aren't exactly true, or we could say, uh, so I, um, or we could say uh, other things about um, the existence of the saint, uh, for example. So yeah, it, it wouldn't pose a, a killer problem, but it would be uh, very troubling because of the fact that all priests are bound to pray the martyrology at the office of prime. But there have been cases uh, where there have been uh, certain things in the breviary which have been in error and had to be reformed. For example, there used to be a, a pseudo uh, um, Jerome homily that denied the assumption in the in uh, one of the offices of Matins that had to be removed. So there there has been cases like this in the past, um, and it's not exactly impossible for it to happen, but it's it's really really unlikely for it to happen. But I'm I'm open. But again, most scholars, so I don't really care either way. Well. Okay, so let me check. I'm trying to see if there's any like people in there who are my members. I don't want to like. I don't think it goes through to to Streamyard. Okay, so do you know what right was uh, normally used in the bond agreement consecrations? I have no idea. Um, 
uh, the bond agreement Christianity. Okay. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, I know it. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, I have, I have no idea, to be perfectly honest, um, what consecrations were used in, in the bond agreement. In the bond agreement for everybody you don't, uh, don't know. In the 1930s, there was uh, ecumenical talks between the old Catholics and the Anglicans. They basically came to agreements to, to do a lot of mixing of, of holy orders. Um, okay. So evening militant Thomas, my question is, does St. Thomas ever talk about whether or not the faithful can have certainty as to being predestined to glory? I couldn't find a specific answer in the Summa. No, he does not. I wasn't really a concern actually, um, uh, in, in a lot of, um, scholastic theology. I've never really read anybody who was quite concerned about it and spoke about it too much, which is weird because, um, there is like the small section in the end of St. Augustine's book two of on the predestination of the saints. I distinctly remember the section because I have read some reformed uh, theologians who talked about it, about how we, we, we need to be careful about preaching predestination because of issues that can come about with assurance, but no, um, He's uh, medieval uh, scholastic theology and Roman Catholic theology in general is more concerned about assurance when it comes to being in a state of grace. Okay, so does the episcopate leave an indelible mark upon the soul? That's scholastic answers. Yes, it does. Okay. So, show. There you go. It is a very common phenomenon for Protestants to experience renewal and freedom from sin before their baptism. How do we explain this frequent phenomenon if baptism ordinarily saves? Well, um, my I, I already answered this question. Uh, I don't I don't know if you you asked it before and weren't satisfied with how I answered, but I did answer this question. I remember in a different Q and A. But I'll basically summarize is. We can, we, we can truly say um, that there is the working of the Holy Spirit when it comes to the conversion of a person uh, before the administration of the sacraments, uh, when it comes to drawing them towards uh, communion with the church. So um, we, we, we can explain it uh, in, in that sort of set, uh, certain sense. Uh, what, when it comes to the concern that you have, it, it seems like there is a certain tinge of subjectivism. Uh, in the question that the certain uh, subjective, that, that, that the objective realities of theology from the, um, from the sources of revelation should be subject to the uh, subjective impressions of one's uh, spiritual experience, which is, is a very, uh, very bad error. And which is why uh, when it comes to the spiritual life, it should be always mixed with theology in something that I think it was, um, St. Therese uh, said is that she profited much by speaking to many learned theologians because it really kept her moored uh, from, from drifting away to the various subjective feelings that she had about God, about virtue and the like. So I hope that helps. How do I respond to the assertion that modern skepticism dismantles natural theology? Well, since it's a simple assertion, I respond with a simple negation and deny the premise.
Okay, so how much of a problem do you think is Eastern Catholics venerating Palamas and being Palamites? Are you okay with it, or should it be banned slashed condemned immediately? Okay, I think we can we can distinguish because you're asking two different questions here, and I think it's a very uh, it's very significant that you are asking two different questions here. So the first question is about venerating Palamas, and the second is about being a Palamite. So when it comes to venerating Palamas, it is entirely possible. And uh, some would say uh, likely that Palamas was somebody who was a very pious man, uh, somebody while formally separated, um, while, while materially separated from the church, uh, definitely suffered under a lot of, of ignorance when it came to uh, exactly what the church teached. Uh, there's, there's certainly, um, as, as most of the moral theologians will talk about, there's certainly the um, the supplying of the deficiencies in the sacraments, which were given to him. So he, he truly received um, all of the sacraments of the church. Uh, so, so when it comes to venerating Palamas, uh, it, it's entirely possible. I, th I think there is some, there, there's definitely some scandal when it comes to uh, venerating somebody who, who was, who, who did teach something which was heretical. Uh, but uh, theoretically, it's possible, and um, I'll just leave the leave the judgment up to the church, which they seem to have tolerated the practice. And it might be a toleration because they think it's good, or what I uh, what I would more likely say it's a toleration of a certain evil that a greater evil doesn't come about, and that greater evil is the schism of the church, well, a schism of a certain section of the church uh, from the from from the Roman Pontiff. Now, the second question you're asking, is it okay for an Eastern Catholic to be a Palamite? Absolutely not. Palamism is heretical and it denies uh, dogmas to faith. So it is absolutely not okay to be a Palamite. Um, the, uh, you, you get in, uh, what is it, Altesunt? Um, yeah, I think it is, where there is the... Uh, the realization that the Eastern view on the beatific vision is heretical. It is something that must be denied by Eastern Catholics. And that really uh, virtually contains the entire Palamite system, which must be, uh, must be rejected as heretical. It denies dogmas of the faith. It denies the simplicity of God as, as, um, as declared in Lateran four and then in Vatican one also. So you, you, you cannot hold it and be Catholic. Now, you can take a Cope interpretation, like uh, that actually Ma, Ma Palamas was, was really a Scotist in disguise. Like, yeah, go for it, I guess. But you, you can't uh, take the sort of normal interpretation of Palamas and believe that it's okay. Okay, so since we'll be able to enjoy secondary goods in the new creation, even with beatific vision, we'll be able to play video games then in the eternal age to come as well. Is this is this like the question with the with the Muslim kid talking about playing Fortnite with the Prophet Muhammad? I'm I'm not going to give my declarative judgment on this question. I don't want to be memed. Is showing your high score to your friends so they'll praise you as a secondary motive of doing so, not the primary one, be vanity, or would it be okay? What if it was primary? Um, as long as it's not out of proportion uh, with the 
with the uh, sort of um, good that's being uh, that's being presented. So uh, presenting your high score to your friends so that uh, they try to install you as the president of a small Eastern European nation uh, would not be a something proportionate uh, to the good. But um, showing it to them so that they may uh, in the future, um, I don't know, uh, want to be on your team uh, in the game. That would be something which is absolutely appropriate and in proportion with the good. So, so controversial opinion. We shouldn't read the Bible without having a good commentary, learn a guide. Yep. Uh, as St. Pius X talks about, uh, all, I mean, this is just basic canon law. Bibles need to have the notes of the church, uh, something which is vital. This is Kyle Ratified based. Okay, so... Do people with disassociative identity or multiple personality disorder have multiple wills? No. No, because that would mean they would have multiple souls, which is impossible. It's just a certain perception that they have of themselves. Um, how can we explain that certain mystical paths outside the church seem to be more effective in obtaining experiences of union with God? Yoga, for example. Um, I would explain it by demons, uh, usually, um, because if you read any sort of uh, mystical treatise by a good Catholic, for example, Dark Knight of the Soul or anything like that, it's clear that uh, when it comes to union with God, there needs to be that, that movement of purgation of the soul that is something distinctively Catholic, that there needs to be that dark night whereby, the, uh, as St. John of the Cross describes it, that the bark is being burned away from you, that the pure fire of the Holy Spirit may uh, enlighten inside of you. That's something distinctively Catholic. And it's because uh, we do not have a, a sort of small view of God as as other uh, religions may have. We, we understand the true transcendence and imminence of God, that we need to be um, constantly uh, purged uh, of our mortality in order to achieve a mystical union with God. And it's really just demons. It's all demons. They're just infected with a bunch of demons. Yoga is the worst. Should witches be burned? And Storius uh, argues that the teaching of Exodus should be continued in the modern period in the Malus. Um, the, there, there's a there's a distinction that we can make between the the lawfulness and the prudence of such a thing that it is lawful. Obviously, uh, obviously, yes, it's lawful. Uh, would it be prudent to to impose such a law on modern day America? It wouldn't be prudent at the moment. And that's kind of the distinction that we always have to keep in our minds when it comes to um, instituting laws. Lagrange or death, so true. Boomer tech moment all the time. Okay, so how could we restore the West? Is it screwed up until the coming of the Antichrist? How can we restore the West? Um, prayer offices, 
pray your rosary, have a lot of kids, teach them the faith, teach them uh, philosophy so that they can defend the faith and um, die. That's uh, that's really what we all have to do. It's it's nothing super complicated. It just requires a sort of ordinary faithfulness and ordinary holiness. A lot of people think it's going to be won by some sort of extraordinary means, but no, it's just going to really be um, kind of outlasting them in, in having a, the, the, the fortitude that's necessary to, to live uh, that sort of uh, life, which was ordinary for our ancestors. Because with the, the sort of pressures that we have from the outside, it is very difficult to, to live that life. Uh, having, not having your wife work, for example, having a lot of kids, um, being able to, to frequently pray uh, throughout the day and also to pray with your, uh, with your families, to keep your kids away um, from a lot of the corrupting influences of the world, to adequately prepare them in order to, to defend the faith uh, once they come of age. All of these things have been made extremely difficult uh, by the outside world. And it requires a strong sort of communal framework of, of living uh, together apart from the world. There needs to be that strict separation that happens now. Uh, if not, there's, it, it's just going to continue to decline. We've, we've tried the whole uh, living, living in the world and send, just send your kids to, uh, to public school and uh, make sure they, they just have catechesis. They'll be fine. And we'll pray. We'll pray a rosary each night. Though they're gay by 13. It doesn't work. You need to, you need to separate yourselves and to, to go out from among them. It's uh, that that's the only way it's gonna, it's gonna get any better is to, to live uh, completely differently than the advice we've been given. It's not going to work. These, these people in the world, they hate us. They hate our way of life. They want to destroy it and they will get your kids and they will convert them before, uh, before they're even teenagers. Um, it, there's, there's no question about it. They will brainwash them uh, from the youngest age and they will, uh, they will take them uh, from you. And then you will just be left uh, at 80, 90 years old, no grandchildren because all your kids are gay. And you will just die in pure agony and pain and despair. Uh, that's, that's, that's the reality of it. Um, that's where we, we've come up to. Um, Hate to be a black pillar, but um, we will win in the end, though. So, but it's just going to be a rough, rough, rough life for all of us. And this is the time when saints are made. Okay. Uh, if there are animals in the new creation, will they then also be immortal? If God will glorify and unite himself with all reality, burning bush, how will this look for animals? Uh, I have no idea. Um, no, I've, I've no idea about the animal question. Please stop asking me about it. As humanity generous uh, allows evolution of animals over long aeons and even uh, ancestors of specifically created Adam, 
uh, God taking a humanoid and transforming it into man. Is it true to say uh, YEC uh, slash OEC are a theolagumenon? It depends. Um, it depends on what specific theses are being put forward. It really does, because there are certain um, aspects. Uh, oh, there's certain versions of um, evolutionism that are condemned, that aren't allowed. Uh, polygenitism, uh, poly, I think it's polygenitism, for example, which that there were um, multiple heads of the current human race. That is absolutely uh, not allowed at all. Um, and then I can't remember all of the other uh, theses that would be denied of evolutionism. That's that's one of them. What? Who's Mr. Beast? Money. Nice. What do I do, Christian? Eliminate him. So how do I answer the Protestant objection that we believe that Christ's sacrifice wasn't enough? Well, I think a, a very good distinction and something which I've noticed, and I kind of want to work this out a little bit more, uh, just uh, I, I've uh, reading, um, reading some Luther I, a while back, I, I noticed this, is that there's a clear confusion a lot of times in Protestant objections to Catholicism between the objective and then the subjective aspects, or I, I guess you could say the primary and the instrumental aspects of, of, um, of certain things. So when it comes to Christ's sacrifice, objectively speaking in itself, it is absolutely uh, sufficient for the redemption of the entirety of creation. Now, this says nothing about the instrument in which it will be subjectively applied or the uh, the certain effects that it will have due to the um, the relative uh, limitedness, uh, finitude of the subject receiving it. It says nothing about any of those things. Um, really, when we talk about uh, the, the sufficiency of Christ's uh, atonement, it is something which is uh, objectively infinite. And then uh, subjectively can be applied in uh, many different levels uh, to each individual. Um, so, so yeah, and, and this obviously just flows from the, the fact that Christ died su uh, sufficiently for all and then efficiently for some. Is that there's a distinction between the objective and the subjective aspects of Christ's atonement when it comes to the atonement in itself and then the atonement for and in us. So this, this confusion is very, 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 very prevalent um, in Protestant objections to Catholicism. Um, some claim that St. Thomas Aquinas taught that only the priesthood leaves an indelible mark upon the soul and not the episcopate. Unfortunately, he didn't teach that. And, um, and I will try to find a cope reading how to say that he didn't teach that. But it's pretty obvious that he did, unfortunately. I, I do really, 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 really want to say that he didn't, but he did. So how will we not be sad in heaven by having loved ones in hell? Will they suffer physically after the resurrection of the bodies? How can we cope in this life with the idea of having damned relatives? Well, first, um, this might be a little controversial. Um, 
the damnation of the wicked should not be something which troubles us. Um, and I will I will share my screen real quick. Actually, uh, when it comes to the damnation of the wicked, it is something which we, uh, as saints in heaven, will rejoice in. And it, and the uh, locus classicus of this is found in Revelation, which um, talk about the smoke which is arising um, from uh, the um, from Satan and his angels. Uh, I, I can't I can't remember exactly uh, what how, how it's phrased. Uh, the smoke. I need to find this um, Revelation uh, smoke arising. Okay. I feel like there's like a good like Puritan reflection on this. Okay. Ah, I can't I can't remember where it is, but there's a certain text in Revelation where it talks about the smoke of the smoke of the damned arising uh, forever and ever, and then the the people of God are. are um, are shouting, uh, "Blessed be the Lamb," and and, um, and 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 such and so forth. So there was there was a Puritan author who, reflecting on this passage, made the made the comment that the that parents who are beatified will rejoice in the damnation of their children, and, and husbands to the damnation of their wives, and children to the damnation of their parents, for the glory of the glory of God and the glory of the Lamb. And uh, believe it or not, that is actually a correct intuition uh, by that author, is that when it comes to the entirety of providence, as we see from Romans 9, the damnation of the wicked brings about the uh, greater goodness and glory of God in that he uh, is glorified not only as redeemer, but also as judge. And you see this in St. Thomas's commentary in Romans 9. But I wanted to draw your attention to uh, the supplementum, uh, question 94, article 3, whether the blessed rejoice in the punishment of the wicked. He says, on the contrary, it is written, the just shall rejoice when he shall see the revenge. Further, it is written, they shall satiate the sight of all flesh. Now, satiety uh, denotes refreshment of the mind. Therefore, the blessed will rejoice in the punishment of the wicked. I answer that a thing may be a matter of rejoicing in two ways. First, directly when one rejoices in the thing as such. And thus the saints will not rejoice the punishment of the wicked. So we will not rejoice in the punishment of our relatives as such, as punishment. Second, indirectly by reason of something annexed to it. So this would be secundum quid. And in this way, the saints will rejoice in the punishment of the wicked by considering therein the order of divine justice and their own deliverance, which will fill them with joy. And thus the divine justice and their own deliverance will be the direct cause of the joy of the blessed, while the punishment of the damned will cause it indirectly. So when it comes to our contemplation of the punishment and damnation of the wicked, and I'm going to move this up real quick because I noticed that I didn't had it covered. When it comes to a consideration of that, we will be um, we, we, we will be joyous in divine justice. The fact that he has eliminated the wicked 
and the fact that they receive eternal torment for their sins. It's going to be something which is joyous in the consideration of divine justice. Um, so, so yeah, uh, the, the, not, not a popular take, but it's a take that I will, will gladly um, defend. I think I went off for a second, but I'll stop sharing my screen and continue on. Okay, foundationalism. Def can I give a defense of foundationalism? Actually, uh, I can't give a defense of foundationalism because as Father Copens in the tradition has generally said, first principles cannot be proven, but only scientifically demonstrated. So I can't give a defense of them. But, you know, I will, I will start this question to see if I feel like discussing this more in length later. But yeah, that is, that is a part of something being a first principles that is not demonstrated, not subject to demonstration. What is Avaternity? I have a video about this. So if you want to scroll back down, I do actually have a video on Avaternity and what it is. Um, I find it really hard to believe why we should believe in the real uh, existence of a matter form distinction. Any books on this? I find it incredibly uh, hard to believe that anybody would deny it. Like, this is a cup. This is a cup. They're different cups. They're individuated by being uh, materially different, also uh, by having certain uh, different accidents. But yeah, they're, they're, there's a matter and a form to this, and they're, they share the same form, but they are uh, distinguished uh, individually by their uh, distinct matters. Um, so yeah, it, uh, honestly, I don't know how anybody denies the matter form distinction. It's something which is so intuitively obvious that only the only a mind which has been tainted by modernity could deny something so obvious. Okay. Long time no see, bro. How's it going? And sorry if I do not uh, answer any of your questions. Okay, so. Um, okay, so a good book of Thomistic epistemology, if the intellect directly apprehends the forms of things, why do we so often get it wrong? So uh, I will, usually I think, I think what you're asking for is actually not epistemology. You're asking about Thomistic psychology and uh, uh, Maher's uh, work on psychology is going to be the met, is going to be the best. But let me. And also this touches in logic and criteriology too. But uh, I think Maher will probably cover uh, he does cover all of these issues. Let me get you the link real quick. There's a lot of good questions. A lot of good questions. So I will, I'll try to keep going until the wife uh, decides to tell me dinner's ready. So I'm putting in Mary right there, but. Um, 
Okay, great, great question. So as angels became demons, can the saints fall from the beatific vision? So they cannot because uh, when it, so this, this was a problem which was explicitly dealt with uh, by, by St. Thomas. Uh, when it comes to why angels became demons and how this, or demoms as, as you, uh, as you spelled it, uh, the, the angels in the first moment of their created existence um, were uh, chose uh, to to become demons. They chose away from God it, and uh, appropriated to our sort of uh, intellectual um, level. Uh, we we read it as a sort of uh, a sort of story of of envy and stuff. But no, it was it was in the first moment of their existences that this happened. And the reason uh, for this happened uh, has to do with the fact that they do not have the, uh, they're, they're pure intellects. They do not have uh, bodies and therefore they do not have uh, concupiscence and passions, which would uh, be able to draw them to repentance or be able to uh, change the motion, uh, the, the direction of their will once they choose. So uh, they, they had chosen, um, they had chosen not to, uh, they had chosen not God as their object, but, um, but themselves through pride. So this is why they fell. And to your assumption that they had the beat of vision, this is completely incorrect. Because when it comes to beat of vision, it is uh, not preternatural. So we have natural, which is according to the exigencies of a certain nature as such, which would be like, uh, for for humans, it would be something which would be natural, would be our ability to know that this cup is a cup. It's not preternatural. Preternatural is something which is um, included in nature, possible or actual. So for a created thing. So, for example, uh, uh, immortality for humans, it's something which is preternatural, not natural, because uh, in that we are a composite of of body and soul, we have corruptibility and therefore can die. But uh, in <clears throat> in uh, the garden, we were given uh, immortality and incorruptibility uh, by some sort of preternatural gift because it is possible for a certain creature to have that gift. So it's not uh, it, it's not something which is natural or preternatural, but the beat of division is something which is absolutely supernatural. So uh, the beat of division is something which is above every single nature, um, not only as such, but any sort of possible uh, nature outside of the realm of all nature. Uh, and, and therefore, the angels did not have naturally the beat of vision, uh, but only supernaturally through uh, through sanctifying grace. A certain super added form to the uh, to, to the their their natural light of their intellects that they had to have added. So now the angels, uh, after their uh, first uh, movement towards God, the first movement of their will towards God, were given um, were given grace and were given the beauty of the vision. And in that they were confirmed in grace and now can never fall. But the demons were confirmed in their wickedness, and because of the fact that they do not have bodies. They can't really repent and therefore um, can't really be redeemed since um, and Tom, Thomas goes over all of this. And uh, I, I could just talk about why angels aren't redeemed for quite a while. But uh, but I figured I, I, I would probably lose quite a bit of viewership if I if I went into a schizo rant about that. OK, so. 
what is the evidence for dog people? Um, <clears throat> uh, Coco reached out to me and told me that his grandfather saw a dog person. So, How can we explain the belief that men did not deny, die before the fall? Okay, good. I just explained it so I can kind of uh, keep up with the same categories. So there's a distinction between what is natural, preternatural, and supernatural. Natural is what is of the exigencies of a certain nature as such. So for us, it would be um, our ability to know things, our ability to uh, uh, to will certain uh, created and limited goods that are presented to our intellect and so on and so forth. Then you have what is preternatural, which is above a certain nature as such, but is not uh, not above nature as such uh, in general. So of of uh, it is it is within the reach of possible um, created being, uh, so to speak. And that's what's called preternatural. And then there's what's called supernatural, which is above all nature's uh, actual or possible. So certain things like the beatific vision would be there. So when it comes to some uh, preternatural gifts, immortality would be a preternatural gift, which was uh, which was given to Adam and Eve, and then will be given to us in the <clears throat> in the uh, in eternity. Although uh, it's after a um, it's called a quiet uh, modem uh, supernatural. Uh, something which is after supernatural mode, but it's not strictly supernatural as such, because uh, it, it'll it'll be after the mode of a sort of uh, participated um, immortality in the um, in the immortality of God. But that's not something uh, which is supernatural as such, but only above uh, our current nature. So <clears throat> that's uh, that's why uh, man did not fall. I mean, did not die before the fall. And it's also interesting um, in explaining how. A lot of people ask how Mary, uh, how Our Lady uh, died, uh, considering the fact that she uh, was not infected by sin, and how Our Lord uh, also died in that he was not infected by sin. And the answer is that when it came to uh, when, it, when it came to original sin, which is the privation of the of original justice and the gifts, um, it, it took away the uh, the both preternatural and um, and supernatural gifts, and then corrupted, but did not take away um, the the natural gifts. So uh, it, it is not of the constituency of nature as such to be immortal, but rather it is natural to man to be mortal, to to have the ability to die. So with our Lord, he was given the abundance of, um, of supernatural gifts, and even some preternatural gifts, such as freedom from concupiscence. <clears throat> but he was not given all the preternatural gifts because he was mortal. And the same thing with Our Lady. She was given um, all the supernatural gifts uh, besides the beatific vision before death. She was given um, she was given preternatural gifts, uh, but she was not given all the preternatural gifts. So she could still be mortal because uh, uh, mortality, while being an effect of sin, is not uh, something which is essentially um, an effect of sin, but only uh, in, in our in our uh, in our current state. In, in other states, it could be perfectly conceivable that a man be created in a state of pure nature where he uh, would not be given the preternatural gift of um, of, mortality, of immortality and thus would uh, be able to die without sin. So I hope that, I hope that explains it all. Okay, so... Can there be unresistant unbelief, meaning someone who sincerely desires to be Christian but simply isn't convinced by the arguments presented to them for the truth of Christianity? And this is a part one, but I do not see a part two, Chief. Sorry about that.
Okay, so when it comes to that, that's you actually, uh, interestingly enough, you kind of just defined uh, what invincible ignorance uh, practically uh, looks like. The fact that we are um, that that we are bound uh, to uh, honestly uh, look into the arguments for the Christian faith and the nature of the Christian faith. And if there is a certain um, invincibility of overcoming uh, our, uh, some of the uh, shortcomings that we have intellectually or in our um, in, in, in what we're given um, when it comes to books and, and such, that we are uh, we are not held liable uh, for that if we are uh, honestly seeking out the truth. So that would be invincible uh, ignorance. And that is that is what Holy Mother Church says towards Protestants It's basically you are bound to to look into this. And you're bound to give it an honest look, um, and that would uh, that that would be practically how invincible ignorance looks. So, does Luke one thirty debunk the Immaculate Conception? Okay, let's look at this. Luke one thirty. Um, I guess we'll do two Ureims. Okay, so Luke one thirty says, um, I guess I'll read the whole context. So in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin espoused to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And the angel being come in said unto her, Hail, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women. Who, at, having heard, was troubled at his saying, and thought with herself what manner of salutation this should be. And the angel said, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Um, so this comes from, uh, I, I guess this objection uh, assumes something. So this comes from the Protestant notion that grace is something which isn't uh, reparative, but uh, well, isn't elevating, but merely uh, reparative. That's merely something uh, which is uh, a sort of mercy on uh, on sinners. Uh, that that complete that that's their uh, really a complete um, notion of of uh, grace for them. But rather uh, for Catholics and for sacred scripture, grace can be used in three senses. First, grace can be used to a, as a certain uh, disposition of the giver um, to, to a certain person. So I found grace in the eyes of the king. Second, it, begin, it can be uh, described as the gift itself, which is uh, how Catholics really are going to think about grace. And third, it can be described as the thanksgiving uh, after uh, being given a gift, such as uh, saying grace. So in this sense, uh, fear not Mary, for thou hast found grace with God. Uh, this is going to be uh, something which I would say is being used in the, in the first sense uh, where uh, God has a certain high view or a, a certain love towards a certain object, not necessarily something which involves um uh, mercy uh, from a certain committed sin. That, I think that's a little bit of a of a weird um, proof text to use because I, I don't think it's even um, under Protestant presuppositions obvious that the grace there is speaking of um, a a sort of mercy upon sin. 
Okay, so if one has deceived themselves into thinking with absolute certainty that they are saved when reality are not, should one rejoice that they would be damned? Not not sure what question you're asking. Uh. Okay, so does God deny efficacious grace to those who are stubborn in sin and or plan to repent later? Or does the church teach a cutoff point when this happens? Um, I don't think the church really teaches a cutoff point. Drink your cigarette water. Dude, what do you mean cigarette water? I find it difficult to reconcile the objectivity of natural morality with the fact that morality has obviously evolved throughout history. For example, Aquinas forbade killing the apostate. I find it uh, difficult. Uh, he's asking the, the same question. I would deny uh, simply and absolutely that morality has ever evolved. Um, really, really the only thing we could say that, that has evolved is uh, the certain application in prudential circumstances. Again, that's the difference between something considered in itself and then something considered in how we should apply that certain law to certain circumstances. Uh, there, there's been absolutely no evolution of, of morality. I would challenge you to give me one example, just one. Not asking for many, I just want one example. Why is Sedevacantism incorrect? I would say Sedevacantism is incorrect from the promises of perpetuity that has been given to the hierarchy of the church. And then you can uh, check out any sort of tract on ecclesiology. I'd recommend Sacred Theologia Summa's a tract uh, on, on ecclesiology where it speaks about, um, in, in I think it's like the first five to seven theses somewhere around there, the promises Christ is given to, um, to the hierarchy to continue into the end of the age. Um, it's, it, it's something which is, uh, which is not, uh, not, not consistent with Catholic historical Catholic teaching on the, on the, the survival of the hierarchy. Okay. So since after the resurrection of the bodies, the damned will regain their passions, why can they not repent? Okay, so I would um, distinguish between physical uh, impossibility and moral impossibility. Physical uh, possibility is what you're talking about here. So is it physically uh, possible for the will of someone who is damned to be redirected towards um, and reordered towards goodness? Well, yes, in that they have a will and in that they have a, um, a soul which is uh, which, which is which informs a body. So yes, it, it's possible. Uh, physically um, speaking, morally speaking, no, it's not possible because there's a necessity of grace in order to, uh, in order to transform um, the, the, the soul and elevate the soul that one would repent, which is an effect of grace. So uh, I just that, that, uh, that distinction right there.
yeah, your explanation of foundationalism seems to be just admission of it being untenable. It seems Vatican one dogmatizes foundationalism. This is the bigger thing pushing the orthodox. What is what is so uh, what is so crazy about saying that um, the fact that X can't be uh, non X is is not something which is which is subject to discursive reasoning because your discursive reasoning itself is going to rely on, um, on those first truths. Uh, it, it, I honestly dude, just stop watching Jay Dyer. Uh, that that's really my, my biggest, um, my biggest recommendation because it's, it's abundantly obvious to the entire history of philosophy, um, that there are certain truths which just need to be, um, which accepted a priori. Um, and can't be deductively proven because deductive proof relies on the fact that these truths exist. And therefore, it would be uh, circular reasoning. Okay, so good recommendations for Catholic uh, economics. Uh, there's a good one. It's called Political Economy, and it's by Davos. Political. It's more, it's a manual of Catholic economics. I'm eventually going to reprint all these works, so. That, that I that I keep recommending, uh, and I'm in the middle of it. So if you if you want, I mean, if you, but I think that you should just wait for me to do it. I'm all the way back at six six. Okay, so was Richard Hooker a Thomist? Yes. All you need to do is read his um, first book in his Ecclesiastical Laws. He's clearly drawn from St. Thomas in his views of um, of law. And why do you say in one video that you work closer to Reformed thought uh, versus Lutheran? Well, when it comes to uh, Reform, when it comes to Lutheran thought, um, I, I think it's more of a methodological uh problem well outwardly if you're just looking at it from the form of uh from, from the mere appearance of things say wow lutheran has chasuble on and um and raises host and everything and and has pretty worship therefore he must be um more like us but, but really when it comes to uh considering uh, actually the the system of theology the principles upon it which it rests on a lot of the conclusions which are made and the method in which it's done um, Reformed theology is a million times closer than Lutheran theology. Okay, example of moral evolution. Aquinas defended the death penalty for the apostate. And your point. Okay. What are the recent teachings on the death penalty? 
if the teaching of the if somebody teaches that the death penalty is intrinsically in itself per se um immoral then they are wrong and against the unanimous teaching of the church that's the simple fact it has been taught uh, by multiple popes it has been practiced by um, almost every christian um, at least uh when, when it comes to some sort of um material cooperation in that act it is one of the most obvious uh, teachings of the church is that it is not intrinsically per se immoral now the question of whether it is something to be prudentially applied is a completely different question now i'm not going to uh, judge recent statements by the holy father and nor will i ever uh, do something like that but i'm just telling you that that is the teaching of the church and that is the obvious teaching of the church and when it comes to saint thomas aquinas's statements about the death penalty of apostates um, it would it, it is theoretically something which could be licit in an ideal circumstance are we in those circumstances to start uh just uh rampaging the uh the tens of millions of um of apostate catholics in america no a terrible idea horrible idea and it should never be done but um, it is something which ideally uh, could be applied because it's something which is not um, intrinsically, uh, per se, morally uh, uh, sinful. And that's all I'll say about the question. Uh, if we go to hell, should we be happy about it because it's uh, God's just and uh, justice be uh, expressed by the damnation of the wicked? Should we be happy about it? Yes. Will we be happy about it? No. Okay, why doesn't, uh, why wouldn't God give grace to the wicked so they all repent? Doesn't the will uh, to save all follow from the love of God towards all creatures? That is a, that is a great question. So when it comes to God's, and this is this is a very tricky question, so I want you to pay uh, very close attention to exactly the terms I'm using and exactly the distinctions I'm making. So when it comes to God's uh, God's will, God's will is directed towards the goodness of, of the whole, and also uh, is directed towards uh, directed antecedently towards the good of all of the individual parts. Now, uh, when it comes to uh, the outworking of providence, um, there are certain defects in certain parts that if they were to be removed due to the ordinary uh, course of, of um, causality would result in greater evils um, being uh, following. But if they are to be tolerated, actually, in some cases, they would result in certain goods following. So. Um, and uh, consequently, so the distinction between antecedent and consequently, consequently, in consideration of the good of the whole, it is, um, it, it, uh, it ought to be, um, the, the toleration of certain evils ought to be allowed that, um, that the greater, that, that a greater goodness not be diminished and that a greater evil not come about. So when it comes to the damnation of the wicked, 
uh, or, or when it comes to uh, sin itself. When it comes to sin itself, it is something which is a physical evil that is tolerated by God in order to bring about his glory in redemption, in, in especially in the redemptive incarnation, and also uh, his glory in, uh, in, in expressing his justice against the, the wicked. So the distinction between antecedent and consequent, the distinction between the whole and the parts, the distinction between willing and evil and tolerating an evil, all of those are very important um, to this question. So I hope that is that is helpful. Uh, I didn't get it from Jay Dyer. Okay, good. I got it from Hume and Kierkegaard. I'm not a priest up. I'm pretty much a few days. Okay, uh, that's. Uh, I will actually recommend different books to you now that I know that. Um, so if you want a good introduction to Thomistic epistemology, this really is more against uh, skepticism, but generally this covers what's called criteriology. Um, so cri uh, criteriology, uh, it's called the first principles of knowledge, which is exactly, I think, what you're asking about. This is by John Rickaby. I, uh, full disclosure, did reprint this. There you go. So I hope you do not uh, get offended that I am not answering your questions uh, anymore because I, I sent the book recommendation, I promise. Okay, so it should be at the bottom. Sorry about that. I just assume when, uh, I hope you, hope you uh, don't misunderstand uh, that when most people are talking about um, classical foundationalism, uh, they're usually just uh, parroting some Jade Iron, don't actually know what they're talking about. So sorry about that. Thoughts on Western Red Orthodoxy? Uh, I think it's wrong, but uh, I did have a I did have a Western Red Orthodox church uh, near my parish down in Florida, um, and it was it was pretty cool. Uh, this was before I was Catholic, so this is why I would do this. But occasionally I would go and uh, sit in on matins and just listen to the to the chant. It was very glorious. Uh, do you think that the death penalty for the apostate is still moral in our time? Death penalty for the apostate is something which is uh, which is moral in itself. Again, the distinction between something being moral in itself and being applicable to a certain situation is huge. So should we, again, should we go around um, uh, just... Uh, executing the hundreds of millions of apostate Catholics around the world. No, that's not something prudential. Now, if we had a 99.999% faithfully Catholic country and somebody uh, apostatized and was trying to destroy souls, would that be something which is uh, moral? Yes. Uh, in that, uh, well, something which would be listed in that situation. Yes. It's not something which is immoral in itself, but can be imprudent, um, secondarily considered when applied to certain circumstances. Now, when it comes to the minimum age for marriage in the Middle Ages, if we were in the same circumstance, um, in, in a, so there, there are certain objective considerations when it comes to uh, when it comes to marriage, such as the ability to consent. Uh, when it comes to uh, diverse circumstances over time, such as those of the Middle Ages, those of today, uh, people in their um, 
the various expectations they may have, and also in really their cognitive abilities develop differently over time. So a 14-year-old a in uh, 1250 was probably as mature as a 20-year-old today. So uh, it's, it's not as, as odd as you would think uh, when it comes to uh, the differing uh, stances of the minimum age for marriage. It's really the, uh, the difference between the law in itself and the application, well, the eternal law in itself and the application of human law. I really would recommend um, if, you, if you really want a, uh, I really, really would just recommend reading um, St. Thomas's Tract on Law uh, in the Summa, uh, which is in Prima Secundae. Uh, I, would, I would definitely recommend that. Okay, so. Okay, so unless there's any more particularly interesting questions, I'm going to highlight, I'm gonna start a few, I'm gonna answer them and, okay. Absurd scandal, you've been here since the beginning and I've seen you put your question there like three times. So I will, I promise I'll eventually um, answer. Julia Fox, Kanye West girlfriend, right when she said that childhood is a modern concept, concept in, in that in the Middle Ages it did not exist. I, I don't know, <laughs> honestly. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I think um, the the more modern conception is actually uh, like the space between um, like adulthood and then real adulthood. Like, okay, I graduated college now. Now I, I graduated high school. I'm an adult, but I'm going to do some stuff for a while before I become a real adult, which is marrying and then having uh, kids. This distinction between adulthood and real adulthood is really what doesn't exist. Um, so I, I don't know about childhood, though. But I, I don't think that would really even uh, mean anything in the long run. Okay, so... Uh, defensive foundations. Yeah, I already talked about that. So have you ever considered uh, joining Eastern Orthodox Church prior to you, uh, to you becoming Catholic? And if yes, what made you do otherwise? Um, I remember very early in my consideration of conversion, I was talking to a Protestant professor of mine and made the comment that everything I was seeking um, in considering Catholicism was not found in Orthodoxy. And um yeah, and I'll stick by that. Uh, and I did stick by it, is I never really considered orthodoxy as a valid uh, concept. And really the main reason had to do with the very uh, very, very uh, weakness that they had when it comes to defending their faith um, intellectually, is I found absolutely no resources when it came to a robust intellectual defense of the faith. And really, Roman dogmaticians were just... Uh, just running circles around them. It was uh, it was utterly insane when I when I read compared the two different sources. It was there was no comparison. 
it, it feels like over time when it comes to Orthodox uh, Catholic dialogue, that it really is Catholics trying to like, it, it almost feels like they're babying the Orthodox. It's really weird um, to, to try to be, be like, they're there. Um, yeah, we, we get, you're, you're saying this, let, let's try to like accommodate, like uh, accommodate ourselves to the Orthodox uh, in, in order that they may understand what we're talking about and try to like, it's like when you when when you're just sitting there and you you see like the like the your your like 13 year old cousin sort of like start spouting off about um about a bunch of of crazy like modern ideas you, you kind of just like sit there and and watch them and you're like man that's like that's really dumb um but what i can't like just get i can't really like argue with, with them rat on a rational level and I, I realized that sounded very, very offensive, but uh, in, in the least offensive sense, take that. Box. Uh, we're Mary and Joseph in love with one another. Depends on what you mean by love. Because romantic love is, is, uh, is, is something which has definitely uh, <laughs> uh, undergone a transformation over time. Uh, since God is often forgiving and indulging, is it true to say parents should imitate this? Also, often forgiving their children when they merit penalties out of love and cherishing. Okay, so actually, there is a section in the Book of Hebrews that kind of covers this. Uh, is that uh, as as a father who loves his children, uh, God often chastises those who he loves. So it's while well, we, we have to make a distinction, and uh, and if you ever if you ever spoken to Hassan, I don't know your Discord, so I don't know if you're in the Discord, but Hassan will often make this point: is that in the in the modern world, we rarely have an understanding of the of the distinction between uh, guilt and then the debt of punishment. So when it comes to guilt, that has to do with uh, forgiving somebody, um, saying like, okay, I, I forgive you, I'm not holding this against uh against you now when it comes to the debt of punishment it comes with those um that that sort of concomitant which means that those uh that those things that come along with uh the fact that one has sinned or transgressed against another so uh for example if some guy uh cheats on his wife and goes back and begs for forgiveness and she's and she forgives him that is forgiving the guilt now the debt of punishment is still there there, there is still um, the, the the trust that is lost that needs to be won back. There's still um, a, a lot of different things that need to be dealt with and fixed. So when it comes to a child transgressing against their parent, while you should always uh, be forgiving and indulging uh, when it comes to their, uh, the guilt, uh, there does need to still be that correction that occurs uh, because you love them. Um, so so I, that, that distinction is hugely important. People don't understand it. They think of uh, that, that punishment or at least temporal punishment and um, and forgiveness are completely opposed, but really they, they have to come alongside one another. Okay, so does the shunning described in 1 Corinthians 5, 11 to 13 of not eating with men who claim to be brothers who are swindlers, sexually moral, et cetera, have a modern application? Yes. And I, I think it really just means exactly uh, what it says there is when it comes to Catholics who are not living out the faith, and who are notoriously uh, sinful, there is a certain break in relationship that happens with the rest of the body of Christ. And for the sake of your own soul, uh, it is prudent to, uh, to stay away from them.
Okay, so <laughs> I'm just coming on here to remind you that childhood, the idea of childhood, was invented in the ninth in the eighteenth century. Part of that children were just regarded as little adults. Well, what was her point in saying that? And and do you and and, and do you really trust um, Julia Fox to be big brain enough to know about? Um, I'm, I'm I'm surprised she knew that like the 18th century existed, much less to be able to make claims about um, historical change before and after then. Like usually with uh, with women like that, they 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 just view the world as like I, I don't even know how they would view history, like as my big bad uh, misogyny, um, and then like my more big bad misogyny, and then. Um, like Roe v. Wade and then modern era. Like that's, that's really like the entire view of history they have. Okay. So does St. Paul explicitly teach transubstantiation or does he teach real presence as described in 1 Corinthians? So when he talks about, um, so the teaching of the church when it comes to what exactly uh, transubstantiation is, transubstantiation is merely referring to the fact that, um, that substantially uh, the, the bread goes from being bread to being Christ. So um, when, it, when it comes to the descriptor of this is my body, um, this is my body is really regarded as, some, as somewhat of a quasi command um, of the transformation um, or transubstantiation uh, from bread to Christ. So in that sense, uh, that can be um, something which is uh, proof of Proof of transubstantiation because you regard it as X beforehand and Y afterhand. Therefore, you have to posit some sort of uh, transfer of substance when it comes to um, describing something as uh, as something else. So uh, then, then when it comes to the other passage in First Corinthians uh, that this is a participation in my body, this is a participation in my blood. Uh, I would I would say that that uh, is merely uh, denoting. Um, a, a real presence, but again, uh, secondarily, we can deduce from a real presence uh, a transubstantiation, which brings about uh, that real presence. Okay, so okay, so I have been. Uh, she said that childhood was invented as a capitalist concept to get people to buy toys. Well, as you all know, I hate capitalism, so yeah. Okay, well, I'm about to leave unless there are extremely important questions. Sorry, I was not able to. So are we allowed to have a more literal interpretation of Hebrews 6, 4, uh, 4 through 6? Read Aquinas' commentary uh, on it. So, uh, sorry, uh, I have, I've went far longer than I usually do. But um, looking forward to talking to you guys later. And uh, do not forget Patreon and all that stuff uh, to get access to a bunch of cool stuff. And uh, follow me on Twitter. Bye.